I'm glad to be here with you all. My name is Justin, uh, and I'm a member here at Genesis. Uh, my family and I have been attending here for about seven years, really since we've been in this uh, building. And, uh, and I serve here as a deacon and uh, occasionally get to preach. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, my last two sermons here have been all about 15 minutes long each, so you may want to make your lunch plans brunch plans, okay? And so uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm all right with that. <laughs> Uh, so enough about me. Let's open your Bibles and let's talk about Jesus. So last week, uh, we discussed the first part of the story of Lazarus. Hans uh, talked about how Jesus uh, was out of town, that he had recently fled as there was a search party to find him and to kill him. Uh, while he was out of town, he was sent word about Lazarus being ill. Upon receiving this news of his friend's illness, Jesus decided to wait and stay two more days, all right? There are three prominent statements made that we should note before getting started here today. Hans talked last week about one. Uh, the, the first one is that Jesus had particular love for his friends. These weren't acquaintances. These weren't just people following him. He loved them. He has a particular love for his friends, and then two, Jesus works to make his father seen. This is the idea of glory, right? So um, to make God seen is to glorify God. We, we do all this in, in many ways. Uh, I mean, we, we read our Bible and we share the word of God. That is glorifying God. We, we gather together and we sing praises. That is bringing glory to God. When somebody has a new baby and you bring meals to her, you are glorifying God. You are serving the body. And so there's very various ways that we can do this. And the, and the third point is um, that Jesus waiting two extra days is for his disciples' good. And, and that is, he is bound by no man or their expectation. Remember, he said that peculiar statement, for your sake, I was glad I was not there. It's a peculiar statement, right? So far in the book of John, Jesus has been called the Word. He's been called the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Bridegroom, Savior of the world. He is called the Prophet. I mean, Jesus himself says that he is the living water, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd. And today we see that he calls himself the resurrection and the life. Before we get started, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, this morning we desire to show honor to you and bring glory to your name by revealing what the scripture tells us about your true nature, your love for your friends, your conquering of death and restoration of new life. I pray that in this time that your kingdom draws near as your heart draws near to those here today that your will is accomplished by the preaching of your word and by our desires conforming to your desires. Give us, Lord, all that we need according to your will. Forgive us our sins, as many as they are, by Christ's holy work, and teach us, enable us to forgive others and love our neighbors. I pray that joy is increased by your nearness, for your nearness to us is our good. Remove from our mind the weariness and doubt that entangles us and deliver from us every sweet-sounding promise which will surely lead to death that both the enemy outside of us 
Also, the enemy that is our own flesh and its desires. And lastly, all that the world has to tempt us with. I pray all these things in Christ's name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so um, to get started, you know, verse 17 really sets, up, uh, sets the stage. Um, when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Um, this is important as we get into it later, but we're going to jump to 19 and then back up to 18. We're going to go all bouncing back and forth. So if you have your Bibles, just get, just get ready, just, you know. Um, so uh, verse 19, we see that many had come to console the sisters and to mourn Lazarus. That may be in their intention. Surely it was. It was their custom to, to gather around and they would spend days together mourning and consoling, praying. But Jesus had other intentions. He had something else in mind. He was there to publicly perform a miracle by raising the dead. And today we learn why. We learned last week that Jesus had purposely waited until Lazarus had died. Without his death, there would not have been a large crowd. Jesus would not have been able to go to that place and have a large group gathered. So when, when somebody is sick in the hospital, maybe they have cancer, or maybe there's a horrible car accident, or um, any, any, any number of things that happen when put somebody in a hospital and, and their life is on the line, you don't see large gatherings, multitudes going to visit that person. That would be inappropriate. Surely, close family and friends would be there praying and hoping, trusting in the Lord. But you wouldn't see a large crowd this is, this is essentially, um, if, if Jesus had uh, saved, healed Lazarus, I should say, instead of letting him die, there wouldn't have been that crowd either, right? There wouldn't have been a large gathering. He might have showed up later, but people had seen people, Jesus healed folks, and, and they went about their way, right? But this was a large ga- gathering, Essentially, this is a gathering for Lazarus that would have been a funeral or a memorial service, a time of mourning and, and comforting for his family. In verse 19, we see Jesus is essentially and simultaneously doing two things by waiting until Lazarus died and then waking him up. The first is he's gathering an audience, which I hinted at a moment ago. He knew people would come. He knew there would be large crowds. Again, if he hadn't If he had healed Lazarus, there would not have been those crowds. And then, two, Jesus was putting the proverbial nail in the coffin. He was going to do that one last thing that would have people arrest him. He's assuring their offense with him, you see, would come to its peak, to its pinnacle. Remember, Jesus came to die. This was his plan A. There was no plan B. The stage was set long ago. So where we are in the story of Jesus' earthly ministry, if, if this was a novel, no one reads novels anymore. If this was a movie, there's a story arc, right? It kind of looks like this. You might have learned that in school. There's the beginning, middle, and end. And we're here in the middle, the rising action, only just before the climax, the great work of Jesus, the part where everyone is on the edge of their seats. So we're, we're coming up to that place. And so when we look at Mary and Martha here in verses uh, 20 
through 23, and then again uh, 32. In fact, I'm going to read that here. Verses, uh, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And so, and then we look at 32. It's very similar. And this is with Mary. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We actually see this in one other place later on with the crowds. Um, the, the crowds uh, were, uh, I'm going to get to it later, so I don't have to spend time with, on it here, but um, the crowds would have said uh, almost cynically the same thing. And so um, one thing we know is that Mary and Martha are the embodiment of you and I who are in Christ. Like, when you look at their lives, they love Jesus. They do. They love him. Last week, uh, the text told us that Mary was the one who washed Jesus' feet with scented oil, perfume, expensive perfume in her hair. She worshiped him. She honored him. We see Martha uh, serving with her hands, maybe, maybe cooking, cleaning, making sure things are presentable, Right? We also see the distinctions of the personality, and, and, and we're not going to get into that today. It's in a later sermon, it's not actually in the text yet. It's later on in John. But these two sisters love Jesus. They're not what we may call today as nominal Christians, Christians in name only. They follow him closely, often traveling with him on his mission. They were on his mission. They were about what Jesus was about. In verse 20, Martha heard that Jesus had come outside of the town, so she went to meet him. And this shows us a few things. It shows us her love and affection for Jesus and reverence towards him. She also likely believed that if he had come to where the people were gathered, that his life would have been threatened. I said it earlier, Jesus was a man whom the Jews wanted to kill. He was a man they saw as a blasphemer, a man they thought was a false prophet leading people astray. We also see that sometimes they doubted his good work. Think about it for a moment. As we go through the Gospels, uh, we see at various times each of the disciples questioning Jesus or doubting him at times. Hey, you and I do that, don't we? Don't we doubt Jesus? I mean, if I do, I do. If I didn't doubt Jesus, I would go on for the rest of my life not sinning. But, but because I think my way is better, because I think this decision is going to be in that moment best for me, we, we fall out of step with what God would have for us. That's called sin. We all do it. We all doubt. Just in the book of John, Jesus has done several miracles already. I mean, he's done some crazy stuff. When he started his ministry, he, uh, he turned water into wine. Thank God. All right. Later, he healed the official son, made a lame man to walk. He fed the 5,000. Jesus walked on water, and brought sight to the blind. 
And in Luke 7, Jesus raised the widow's son from death. There too was a large crowd. People would have known well that Jesus could heal. Especially among his disciples and friends that Jesus had performed these miracles in front of. In verse 21, Martha proceeded to tell Jesus that if only he had been there, her brother would still be alive. I I believe this statement reveals a few things about Martha's heart. Mary shares this concern uh, later in verse 32, which we already read. Let me me first say, I've read many commentaries on this verse, and, and there's not a clear consensus as to whether her statement was an accusation or a statement uh, or a statement of assurance. Assurance that if Christ had been there, surely he would have uh, raised Lazarus. I mean, he was a friend of Lazarus. So, so there's, there's two um, views of, of her statement that if you would have been here, he would not have died. One thing we do know is that this proclamation indeed has layers. When she approached Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, first displays her love and affection for Jesus. It shows that she has faith in his power to heal. She calls him Lord or Master, raising his position above her own. You would not just go around calling somebody Lord. That would not be appropriate. It was was a distinction for those in higher authority. She clearly saw Jesus to have that authority. Her words are also full of grief and sadness for her brother's loss. And this is the same with Mary. In verse 32, she came to Jesus and fell at his feet. She honors him. She worships Jesus. Mary loves him. Both of these women had emphatic belief that Jesus could do a great work, and that's why they called for him. That's why they sent for him. I imagine they would have said, go get Jesus! Go get the man who can save our brother. Tell him to run. Run as fast as he can. Find the man that can save. Tell him it's Lazarus, his friend. Martha later says to Jesus that if you ask God of anything, it is yours. I mean, he is the son of God, right? And the good father likes to give good gifts to the son, doesn't he? Do you hear me? God gives good gifts to his children. And Jesus was the firstborn over all creation. And you too who are in Christ are sons and daughter of the Most High. I believe, however, uh, she may be at least in part blaming Jesus for her, son's, her, her brother's death. Hear me out, hear me out. Um, she seems to want to say, you failed me. We sent word to you and you didn't come She knows Jesus has the power to heal. She's likely seen it firsthand, and yet he did not heal her brother, even though they are dear friends. Jesus loves Lazarus, and yet Jesus let Lazarus die. There's no question about it. Earlier we read that it was for you. It was for you, Genesis. I mean, he said that to the disciples, and it was meant for them then, but it applies to you, my friends. Or perhaps she doubted the power of Jesus to perform a miracle still. I mean, it had been four days since his burial. 
Four days. She would have known of Lazarus' decay, likely smelling the scents that are coming, seeping through the rocks. The sentiment was uttered once more in verse 37. It contrasted with the crowd who was in 36 saying, see how he loved him? But in 37, the verse says, but some of them said, who not he who opened the eyes of the blind, or could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? See, in this case, it seems to be some cynicism towards Jesus. It seems like a sarcastic statement. So there's three similar statements here. But it seems that Martha is leaning on her own desire, her own will, her own comfort, rather than the promises of Jesus. This is what we know from the text. Nowhere is it written that Jesus promised that he would heal Lazarus. Let this be a reminder to us all. Let us not put our hope in what Jesus has not said, but rather in the sure promises of the word of God. We have his assurances written in the scriptures. I would suggest that Martha, like all of us at times, has a man-centered glory, a focus on self rather than a God-centered glory. What I mean to say is that we want our will accomplished, tainted as it is, rather than pure and perfect will of God. I mean, we pray that way, do we? When we pray, it's often, give me this, I want this, help me with this. And those, those are good things to ask, don't get me wrong. But how often are they um, for God's glory? I mean, Jesus in the garden said, not, yet not your, my will be done, but your will. We don't pray like that, do we? Have any of you been grateful for unanswered prayers? I have. I have, certainly, many times. I'm not going to share them here. They're too embarrassing. <laughs> I'm just going to say. Has there been something that you wanted so badly only to find out later that if it had been accomplished, it would have been accompanied with unwelcome circumstances? Have you ever wanted something and then realized later that it had been a ruin for you? Maybe you have stepped outside of God's will and, and done something that you wanted regardless, only to find out that it brings destruction and heartache, only to find out that it brings death. When our confidence is low in our ability to change or maybe learn a new skill or overcome an addiction or, or stop looking at that thing on the internet or on the billboard as we drive to work or raise our own children well, to be self-controlled or, or loving our neighbor, we are like Mary and we are like Martha. We may love Jesus, our hope and our trust is in him, but we lack the faith that he can do a good work in us. We perhaps are relying on ourselves, a self-confidence. This is a worldly term, a secular one. It is not a Christian term. Cast off yourself and rely on God to die to self and follow Christ, self-confidence versus relying on God. That's putting your confidence in he, who he is. The father who loves you, the son who sacrificed for you, and in whom you can have salvation, and the spirit 
who, is, who has been given to you, who does a good work in you who are in Christ. The, we're going to read 23 through 27 here as I'm bouncing around. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. See, we learn that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. See, this concept is often for you and I to understand. And we have two Testaments. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is pointing us toward Jesus and the cross. Saying this is how he's the resurrection and the life. And some of, sometimes you and I go, what does that even mean? It's a vague concept. It's an abstract one. We have the, the whole of the New Testament pointing us also to the cross, back at the cross, also sharing how he is the resurrection and the life. In verse 23, Jesus tells Martha plainly that Lazarus would rise again, but this time, instead of assuming too much of Jesus' will, she assumes too little. I lost my place. Here we go. She says, sure he will on the last day. Often we tend to be impatient with God, don't we? We treat him like some kind of genie that grants wishes instead of a loving friend who knows all your needs and desires what is best for you. We think, but if you, God, had done it this way, it would have been better for me. I went out for the job and I didn't get the job. The other guy got the job. He's not even qualified for the job. I asked the girl to marry me and she said no. I spent two years in that relationship. What? I know what's best for me. God, what are you doing? But his ways are not our ways, are they? Let us look at the passage where God speaks for a minute in Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. The whole passage reads, and I'll read it for you here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your, your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God's heart is to pardon the guilty, to show mercy if you want to know who the guilty is, listen, we're all good, right? I mean, mostly good. At least we're better than the other guy, right? 
That's what we think. But if you want to know who the guilty is, just get a mirror. Look at it. It's, it's right here. Right there. There's the mirror. You got to read it. Find out what it says. But when you, when you understand the word of God, you look in the mirror and it's as it's, and you come out with it saying, I am not innocent. I am the one who is guilty. I am the one who needs pardoning. It says that there is none that is righteous. No, not one. The scripture here tells us that it is God's heart to pardon the guilty. It's a desire to pardon you, to show mercy. The Lord lets the wicked forsake his ways so that he might understand his folly and return to our loving father. God's plan for those who turn to him is compassion. Not anger, not wrath, compassion. He is not like an earthly father. He's not like me. I get angry far too easy. Far too easy. Lord, conform me to you. We need not hide in our sin, but turn to a loving father, a faithful son, and a willing spirit. In God, you can find peace. See, Christ is the resurrection and the life. When Jesus says this to Martha, she didn't seem to know what to think of it either. She again talks about some future event that will happen. Salvation happens not in some future act, but it's happening now. It happens when you put your hope and trust in Jesus. God redeems the world through Christ's sacrifice. Man is separated from God by sin, and by his spirit he regenerates us. This is very important, and we'll come back to it later, but for now let's read verses 33 through 36. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? See, Jesus is, is fully human. And he's fully God. He's not part one, part the other. He's fully human, fully God, who experiences the full range of emotions. Not human emotions, mind you. Emotions began with God. He had them far before we were ever created. Man was made in God's image and likeness, not the other way around. You have emotions because God has emotions. Only our emotions are perverted by the fall and the sin that entangles us. But, in, but with Christ, his emotions are perfect. When God feels sorrow, he does so perfectly. When he is anger, it is without sin. When God experiences joy, it is full and complete joy. Jesus hated death at the fall. He hates it still. Death was not part of God's creation plan. It's easy to think of death as part of the natural order, but it's not natural. It's a payment for sin, a curse to creation. It wasn't there in the beginning. It wasn't there until sin entered the world. The phrase here, he was deeply moved. It would be easy to think that this means that he was sad. I mean, Jesus wept, didn't he? 
he wept, he was deeply moved, he cried. He was deeply moved. It must mean that he was sad and he cried. But no. He was deeply moved. That is one word in the Greek. Embrimame, which literally means indignant. He's angry. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, um, Pastor, uh, Pastor Dane Ortland quotes B.B. Warfield's classic book. I love B.B. Warfield. I have his 10-volume set. Oftentimes when I'm studying the scriptures, I've got to pull one of them off and, and search it. Um, but he quotes his classic book, The Power and Works of Christ. And in that, B.B. says, Inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. He continues, what John does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in a flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for us and with us in our oppression and under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption. Orland continues in his, in his book, and I'll finish here with that. While Christ is the lion to the impenitent, he is the lamb to the penitent, the reduced, the open, the hungry, the desiring, the confessing, the self-effacing. But he hates with righteous hatred all that plagues you. Remember that Isaiah 53 speaks of Christ bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. He wasn't only punished in our place, experiencing something we never will, that's condemnation. He also suffered with us, experiencing what we do ourselves all the time, mistreatment, suffering. In your grief, he is grieved. In your distress, he is distressed. End of quote. Jumping ahead for a moment, um, we're standing there at Lazarus' tomb, and Jesus begins to pray. In verse 41, uh, Jesus prayed and, and thanks the Father for hearing him. He says that he did this so that the people may know our Father sent him. Earlier in John, uh, we see we had seen Jesus doing miracles. In private, but now he's close to his arrest and wanting to show uh, the Jews just who he was. In fact, this very miracle uh, set off the plot to kill Jesus. And you'll see in coming weeks that they wanted to add Lazarus to the hit list as well. I mean, just for being associated with him. For being a recipient of his mercy. Don't we sometimes feel like collateral damage? Hey, listen, don't get me wrong. Most of the time it's our fault when things don't go our way. We make a lot of mistakes. But sometimes when seeking to honor God and do what is right, the world wants to just plow us over. 
Sometimes we feel like collateral damage because of all the hatred that the world has for the Son. So here we are at the tomb. Do you see it? Verse 39, Jesus asked for the stone to be removed, and Martha was worried about the stench. She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for it is bit, he has been dead for days. And Jesus corrects her. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus calls out in a loud voice and commands Lazarus to come out. I'm imagining people standing around, maybe talking a little bit. And Jesus just comes up and shouts, Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. Do you see what happens here? This is very important. Jesus didn't make a way for Lazarus to have his life restored. He didn't make a deal with Lazarus and say, listen, Lazarus, if you promise to do better, I will restore you. No. He didn't say, Lazarus, if it is your will, rise from death and follow me. I'm giving you my invitation, but it's in your hands. He didn't do that. You know why? Dead men don't make decisions. He's dead. Then Christ gives him new life. What joy. What joy it must have been for Lazarus in that moment. Jesus commands, come out. Lazarus must have hopped right up and said, yes, sir, you don't have to ask me twice. What joy must he have had in that moment? You see, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, he would have done more than flip the off switch back to on again. We all know that death, with death comes decay. It's ugly. Decomposition starts within four minutes of someone dying. I actually did a lot of research on that, and I wanted to bring it into the sermon. I, really went, I was like, that's too gory. It's not for this crowd. <laughs> but listen, they weren't bombing people in ancient Jerusalem, so his body would have been in pretty bad shape, and the smell would have been more than pungent. He did not call out a decaying body. This is not how the start of the Walking Dead series begins. All right? When Jesus called out Lazarus, he did not reanimate dead flesh. No zombies here. Frankenstein's monster? Nope, nowhere to be found. He restored his friend to life. Every cell in his body would have been made new. He would have put things back into place. His eyes, which were cloudy, were now clear and bright. Four days? Four days? What is four days? God said that through the prophet Ezekiel that he will raise up an army of dry bones. I mean, they go out of the way to describe how dry the bones are. That he would put flesh on them and breathe life into them. And that the Lord would open their graves and they, they would know that he is God. Look it up, Ezekiel 37. I don't have time to go there today. So what is four days or four weeks or four months what about years or decades? What is it that God cannot do? See, we often keep count like David in the Psalms. We say, how long, O Lord, do I have to be stuck in this situation? How can I survive this marriage that I'm in? 
How can I survive the job? What about this cultural moment? Have you guys seen outside? Have you been outside? Don't turn on the internet and do not watch the news. I'm telling you, it's bad. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. The world is turned upside down. But he restored Lazarus and made him a new creation. There would not have been a stench. He would not have needed to recover. He was whole again. This miracle is a foreshadowing. The story of Lazarus is a true event in history, witnessed by many, that teaches us a lesson about the character of God. His heart for his people and the condition of man, our need for him, Christ the King, to heal and restore us. He does this for us still today. And this is why he is the resurrection and the life. You see, we were once too dead in our trespasses and sins. Some of you are still now. Some of you may not know the fragrance of new life. Jesus raised Lazarus' body. In a similar manner, he makes us a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. It's like Jesus, I mean, it's true that Jesus, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Jesus himself defeated death in the grave. He defeats death once here by raising Lazarus, but ultimately and completely at the cross. Jesus stepped into creation and loved his people. To make things right as the good shepherd between his flock and our father, Jesus came wrapped in flesh and experienced suffering and death. This, my friends, is good news. It's because, it's good news because it's by this act of being crucified and self-raising. You see, no one raised Jesus. Jesus raised himself. It's in this act that he reconciles us to God in heaven himself our good father. Verse 44 says, when Jesus commands the people to unbind Lazarus and let him go, it reminds me of what Jesus does for us who put our hope and trust in him. We are unbound from sin and set free in Christ. To say it another way, when Jesus brings us from death to life, we are no longer bound to death and sin has no hold over us. Today, I invite you, if you're, if you're dead, like seriously dead, and you're walking around and you don't know Jesus as Savior, maybe there's a hole there that has not been filled. I want you to know him. I want you to know him. I want you to know Jesus. I can't make this happen. I could spend all day up here yelling at you, but I can't make this happen. The Holy Spirit has to do a work in you. He has to take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He's got to remove the scales from your eyes so that you can see and give you new ears to hear. Holy Spirit does that. He does a good work in us and Jesus sacrificed for us so that we can live. So if that is you today, come grab an elder. Hans is in the back right now. Pray with him. Tell him your story. We've got deacons here. I mean, we've got elders here. We've got Johnny over here. Uh, John over here, Rock, grab one of these guys. I'm telling you, if there's a tug on your heart to follow after Jesus, it's not indigestion. 
Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And the Holy Spirit is saying that to you now. I want to say this to you. If there is a desire in you to know God, but you think you are undeserving, you are. You are undeserving. God does not take the deserving. Remember, there are none that is good, none that are righteous. Jesus saves the undeserving. Grab someone in this room and say to them that there is something broken in me. I ask you now, and I'm speaking to all of you, not just those who are trying to figure out where they stand with Jesus, but to, but to, to you also who love the Lord, who are called into his ministry and serve this church. Every one of us, I say to you now, in what, in what ways do you need to be unbound? I love that it says that Jesus told the people to do that. Jesus didn't unwrap Lazarus. He told the people to do it. That means you have people in this room that are willing to take off those rags, those burial cloths that have still not been removed and help you to walk in freedom. So if you're struggling, struggle here. This is a hospital. This is the place where the sick and the dying go to find healing and life. Come here. Stay here. Get into the lives of the people here and say, I am not well. People come here for healing because there's people here willing to help us. How are you doing? Fine, 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 fine. I'm not fine. Generally, I feel like I'm okay, but there's this thing in me, right? There's this thing in me that I want to get out and I don't know how to get it out on my own, so help me. What you're going to find is another person who may be just a little bit broken, who goes, I got you. I have you. We are going to go to the cross together and we are going to find our hope renewed in Jesus. Older men, find younger men. I'm telling you, find them. Speak into their lives. They're young and they're not going to come to you. Teach them what you know. Young men, if they don't come to you, find them. Don't be foolish. Go to the older men and say, teach me what you know. Tell me your mistakes and how I can avoid doing the same things. Older women mentor younger women. Younger women find older women. Listen, this takes vulnerability. It's not comfortable to lay out your dirty laundry. Who here may be a little broken and wants to take someone else who's a little broken and run to the cross? I am, and I do. I do. 